Today's Bible reading is Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 12, and Proverbs 31, verses 20 through 31. An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates, and he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teachings of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the word of God. Okay, Revive Church. We are in part five of our series, Life-Giving Wisdom. As we, we're not going to, you know, hit every single passage, of course, in the book of Proverbs. And there's a lot of these kind of um, aphoristic type Verses, but what we want to do is hit some of the big themes throughout this summer. And last week, I gave you a message called um, that the family is the vehicle for wisdom. So that wisdom isn't primarily something that's like a piece of cognitive knowledge, but it is something that we must love. That it's really that wisdom is more like a beautiful woman that we fall in love with and we pursue we pursue love like you want to pursue a woman you want to date. And that leads to, um, that leads to the next discussion that I want to get at today, which is also very big in the, the book of Proverbs, which is seeking a spouse. And, and, and then and particularly in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is, is about a father speaking to a son. So it's primarily about seeking a good wife. Um, so at least that's the language it's used. But of course, you know, th- as you read this, you can see that it isn't, uh, it isn't, you know, many of the verses are not specifically only about women. It, the, the verses go both ways. Now, I want to say a little something about this before we get into um, the meat of the message. First of all, um, why? Why would I address this? Okay. And um, so first, it's in the Bible. And we're not, I'm not trying to cherry pick some random verse that I happen to like to try to get the Bible to make it say something that I, I wanted to say. That's wrong. That isn't, that isn't real preaching. Okay? Any pastor who does that is sinning against his congregation. We have to take what the Bible says. And generally, I, I don't try to look for esoteric things in the Bible. I look for the main things in the Bible. And there, this is a main theme in Proverbs. We need to receive it. Now, something I want to say about this. Um, Obviously, this is going to uh, apply mostly to you singles directly. You know, you want to hear the Bible and go apply it. So if you're 14 years old today, don't, you know, go apply it tomorrow and want to go get married tomorrow, okay? Um, But um, if you're 14 years old, this message is for you, 
You're like, well, I'm not going to get married for a long time to come, but you're already at that age when you start thinking about the opposite sex, and that's, that's a big part of your life right now, and of course, it's going to be a big part of your life as you go forward. And so how does the Bible think about marriage and the pursuit of marriage? Um, it's already applicable to you. What if you're already married? So, well, I'm already married. I'm not you know, looking for you know, my spouse. I already found my spouse. Um, I want to say something about this. Uh, today, marriage is in trouble. It's in trouble in many different ways. I'm going to get to that a little bit in the um, meat of my, my message. Um, and it, but it's going to take a community. It takes a culture that has wisdom, and this wisdom is applied into that which we love and value. So this thing where wisdom is something that we love, not, it's not just something in our head that unless we go, and then we will in the teeth of what all the folly of our society says, which is exactly the opposite of what the Bible is teaching, it needs a community. The we must have that love for that wisdom. And so married folks, whether you are 25 or 35 or 45 or older, um, all our single folks need, uh, need our love and our attention and our wisdom and our example. And then, of course, we need each other because if you've been married for any short a period of time, you know it's not easy, okay? It's not easy to be a good husband or to be a good wife. One more point I want to say before I get into the, my message. I do not know if you know this, but in America and, um, you know, right now in, and probably not even just in America, but in, in many of the the developing countries of the world, there's a great and important split that's happening in the society. Generally, those people who are better educated tend to also be better, more well-off. They tend to get you know, the higher-paying jobs and so forth. And so the richer people basically in society, you know what's happening? They're getting married. And, they're gen and their divorce rate is falling, and then their children have better results as they grow up. But the poorer folks, the working-class folks, and, those are, and then those who are poor, Marriages falling. And the incidence of out-of-wedlock births are just rising, rising, rising. And so, you know, in the news today, there, there are all, these, all kinds of news about white supremacy, and then we see how outcomes in the black community in America, and it's often compared to the outcomes in the white community in America. But I want to I offer this thought to you. If you look at, and I've studied this data, and there's lots of books written on this, but if you look at the outcome of, of working class and poor black Americans to working class and poor white Americans, you know what? The disparity is not nearly as big as you think. And in fact, the problems are very similar. And a lot of the problems, they go to this. How is marriage valued? Are children born to a mother and a father who stay together and a lot of the social pathologies and dysfunctionalities that we see in poor America that, that people often think are, it's a poor black thing, it's also a poor white thing, it's a poor Native American thing, it's a poor Hispanic, it's for poor folks, and a lot of it comes to this issue that I want to talk about today. Do you, want, do you really care about social justice? I want to tell you, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, not college, not the media, not our government, not according to whatever kind of secular wisdom of man, but according to the Bible, one of the best pieces of social justice help that we can offer our neighbors is marriage and seeking marriage. 
Okay? So that's a bit of a mouthful, and I hope I can have your attention. Three parts. Part one, is marriage a foundation or a capstone? Foundation or capstone? That's part one. Is marriage a foundation or a capstone? Part two, the blessedness of an excellent spouse. The blessedness of an excellent spouse. And part three, the maker and fulfiller of marriage. The maker and fulfiller of marriage. So, part one, uh, is marriage a foundation or a capstone? So I already started this. Why even talk about this? I already said first the Bible emphasized it. And um, let me offer you a second reason. And I want to get into an article, a very, very helpful article. And it's, an, it's a lengthy article um, out of Christianity Today that I discovered. And really what this article reports is that around the globe, not just here in America, this is certainly happening in America, particularly among young adults, in the, among the millennials and younger, this is, a, a, this is a, a rising trend, and you could probably pick up, especially for those of you who are younger, you could probably hear it and feel it among your friends. And um, for those of you who are a little older, ex-gen and boomers and so forth, um, you should know this is going on if you did not know it's going on. And uh, what there is is a rising pessimism on marriage around the globe. So there's an article. This is the article that I read. It's from Christianity Today. Can the church save marriage? Written by... Professor of Sociology, Mark Regnerus. That's his name, Mark Regnerus. So uh, he is a professor of sociology at University of Texas, Austin. And he is the co-founder of Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. So this is what this guy does. I, I, he's, I've, uh, I've read him before. Um, he really knows his stuff. And I want to um, offer you a couple things. So he did a study and talked to many different couples um, around the globe. So here's, but I want you to just hear, here are the questions that led to this study. So, what forces push Christians away from matrimony? Mark Regnus is a Christian. So he, he, is, he isn't just interested in the question of marriage in general, but particularly how do Christians do it, and then how do Christians, how are they contrasted with non-Christians? He cares about all of that. But what forces push Christians away from matrimony? What scenarios encourage marriage? Are American Christians unique in their experience of these forces? And finally, are Christians elsewhere better at resisting the cultural voices that counsel them to be self-absorbed and skeptical about marriage? These are the questions he's asking. So, here's what the study was like. He had a global research team. He spoke with nearly 200 church-going young adult Christians from seven different countries, here they are. Mexico, Spain, Poland, Russia, Lebanon, Nigeria, and USA. The average age was 27, they're church going. So these are Christians. And let me give you the paragraph where he gives you the basic conclusion says, the takeaway from my research was more than clear. Skepticism about marriage is spreading well beyond the West. It was detectable from Mexico City to Moscow, Beirut to Lagos. Lagos, I don't know how, how that city is pronounced. As I studied the data and put the puzzle pieces together, it became obvious that among the globe's young adult Christians, something is afoot with marriage. In an era of new options, more choices, greater temptations, higher expectations, consistent anxiety, there's lots of that in our city. Uh, 
and endemic uncertainty, nothing about the process of marrying can be taken for granted. Let me say that again. Nothing about the process of marrying can be taken for granted. Now you're starting to see why I want to preach on this. And not just I want to preach on this. Well, the Bible is now, it's like 30 years ago, if I was saying, hey, you should want to get married and you should have some optimism about marriage and you know things about this, people in my church would have thought, are, are you crazy, Pastor? Why are you saying this? <laughs> you might as well just tell us water is wet, sky is blue. This is the boringest message of all time. But not so today. And he goes on to say this. I can't stress this point enough. The institution of marriage is under severe strain. The institution of marriage is under severe strain across countries around the globe. And our church is about new life in Christ, proclaiming new life in Christ for the nations of Silicon Valley. So these people from around the globe are coming to the United States and marriage is under strain there. Marriage is under strain here. Now, I can think of all these other reasons why, but I won't get into that. I want to get into one important thing that he says. I 100% agree with this. I've seen this again and again after years of pastoring young people. I've seen this. And then when I watch movies, when I go to weddings, I can see this. So here's the point I want to get across. So here's the, I want to read it, and he says this very, very well. Mark Regnerus. Marriage, even in the mind of most Christians... So this is the attitude across our society. But he says this, even Christians are picking up this attitude. And here's what it is. Marriage, even in the minds of most Christians, is now perceived as a capstone that marks a successful young adult life. Not the foundational hallmark of entry into adulthood. Let me say that again. It is now perceived as a capstone that marks a successful young adult life, not the foundational hallmark of entry into adulthood. So here's what he says. A capstone is the finishing touch of a structure. So you build the building and then like you have this thing called the capstone. It's sort of like a star you put at the top of like the Christmas tree. You know, it's like the cherry on top of a Sunday. That's what a capstone is. It's a moment in time. A foundation, however, is what a building rests upon. It is necessarily hard-wearing. In the foundational vision, being newly married and poor was common. Like, you don't have much money. You're just getting going because our adulthood is starting. It was common. It was also expected and difficult, but, but often temporary. In the capstone way of looking at marriage, being poor is a sign that you're just not marriage material yet. And so then people put it off. I've seen this. Um, I've seen this. I go, to, I, go, I go to weddings. And, um, you know, a lot of weddings. I've been to weddings where um, it wasn't, you know, it's not a Christian wedding. And I've been to weddings that are Christian weddings. And then you hear various different toasts from, you know, people that are close to the bride and groom groom and you know of course a lot of the people present at the wedding are not Christians and you could feel this attitude and it is basically the same among the Christians and the non-Christians 
And the attitude is simply this. You made it. <laughs> you, you know, it's like a lavish wedding. It costs a lot of money. We're having a grand party. Everybody's decked up. People look really pretty. And so now it's like you, you did it. You, you went to school. You got a job. You dated. You this worked. You did this person. And then you found somebody that you love so much. Now you're willing to get married. You have your money. You have your career. Now you have your soulmate. And now we're going to spend the money and have this great celebration. It's a capstone. It's like a destination. It's a place that we have to arrive to. And so there are all these young adults who are friends of the, of the groom and bride as if like, you have arrived. You have been a success. You got to this place. And every time I get this feeling, and I, I get it at every single wedding I've been to, I always think, that's, that's, so, that's so foolish. The life is just starting. <laughs> that's really where it's going. The life is just starting. And so the real truth here, the reason Mark Regnus puts this, because he's biblical. Marriage is not the capstone. It's like you're laying down a foundation. And it goes back to what I was talking about last week. You want a deep and meaningful life, you have to be willing to sacrifice for people. If you want a deep and meaningful life, it can't all be about you. Your career, your identity, your name, your clothes, your vacations, all that cool stuff you're going to put on Instagram because you're having a cool life and everybody you know, like is jealous of your cool life. Oh, you, have, you got this great you know, promotion and everybody is so happy for you about your promotion. And then as you grow older, and I think you already know this, at least in your head, in your head you may know this, but as you grow older, you're going to find out it's pretty empty. You have to have somebody who will say, my child is sick. It's 2 a.m. I don't want to get up, but I will. My wife is sad. My, you know, my, my mother-in-law is dying. This is unbelievably stressful in the middle of our life. And this, I don't know what this is going to do to my wife. She's not going to bear this by herself. I'm with her. And all of that sacrifice, that's a life. That's the Bible's vision of life. Now, I'll save this for a, for a moment. If you are single, the Bible doesn't mean that you, you can't live this. You can live like this. You can live like this. It's just that, you know, you have to have, have a little bit more intentionality. And generally, in the historical past, the Bible has a very high view of singleness. But if you have purpose in the kingdom of God and you'll live for Jesus, and then you will live for your church family. You'll do this for your church family. And then you will do this for your neighbors. And you realize what you give of your life, how you sacrifice of your life, now you're building a life. But most of us, the vast majority of us, we're really, really lonely. <laughs> we want to have kids. And unless you have somebody who lives in the house and tells you to pick up your dirty socks, <laughs> you'll focus on yourself. That's certainly me. Certainly me. I won't become a better human being. You, I would have been a, a terrible pastor if I wasn't married. Now, there are some really good pastors who are single, 
but I couldn't have been one of them, all right? That's more normal. Now, one more sentence from this article, and then let's get to the Bible. I don't usually like going this long without getting to the Bible. But I want you to feel the profound relevance of this. So he quotes a pastor that I respect. His name is Russell Moore. Russell Moore wrote a book called The Storm-Tossed Family. Marriage is increasingly a vehicle of self-actualization rather than a setting for self-sacrifice. Marriage is increasingly a vehicle for self-actualization rather than a setting for self-sacrifice. Same thing, capstone, foundation. Self-actualization or a setting for a deep life, a strong adulthood, a setting for self-sacrifice. That's part one. Let's go to part two. All right. I don't know if you know this, but the passage we read today is how the book on wisdom, Proverbs, this is the way it ends. So Proverbs has 31 chapters. Um, my brother, he went, you know, there was a, in sixth grade, we were, he went to Christian school, and his sixth grade teacher told him, you should read uh, one a day. You should read one a day. In 31 days, you'll have read every chapter. And then next month, start again. I'm saying you should do it every single month, but one of the months of the year, that's a pretty good practice. And um, you'll begin to see what we as the pastors are starting to give you the major themes. You'll see that the major themes we're offering you are the major themes. And, um, but this is the way chapter 31 ends. It's about, it's about finding a good wife. Now remember, it's talking father to son, so ladies, don't, don't get offended. It's just as applicable to you. Just think, you know, finding a good husband. Okay, so let's see how it says. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Let me put it a little bit differently. She's far more precious than your degree. She's far more precious than your SAT score. She's far more precious than your promotion. She's far more precious than your 401k. Okay, you get the idea? Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Um, he will have no lack of gain. I don't know if you know this. There's this thing that, is, uh, that, is, is, is that the sociologists have, have taught when it comes to poverty. Um, they're tr trying to get people in poor communities where there's usually like rampant teenage pregnancy and so forth. So I listened to a guy named Ian Rowe. He's black, by the way. Brilliant guy. Love this guy. And he started these charter schools in New York. And he said in this uh, video that they started doing something that you're generally you don't ever see in a public school setting. So it's a charter school. It's, it's not, I think it's, I don't know if it's a public charter school or it's a private charter school. But he started teaching what they call, the sociologists call the success sequence. You know what the success sequence is? It's, it's not hard to understand. Finish school. All right. Then get a job then get married, then have children. In that order. Finish school, get a job, then have children. I mean, then get married, then have children. Sorry, I don't screw up the sequence. Sorry, Ian, Rowe, and everybody else, okay? In that order. Um, I remember the first time I read about this, I was going like, um, 
duh. If I did things apart from that sequence, my parents would have probably wanted to kill me. <laughs> and, and almost everybody grew up in the church is taught this generally, at least in middle class and upper middle class households. Um, but I don't know if you know this, but in poor communities all around America, they're not taught this. So in his charter schools, they're starting to teach this. I mean, you can't teach this in public school to, out here. You, are you kidding? There'd be so much pushback. But they're starting to teach it. He's like saying, whatever, we're going to just teach it. You know what's happened? The teenage pregnancy rate's going down. Graduations rate's going up. More of the kids are getting married. It's helping the poor kids. Now, I want to say something else. This, this thing, he says, um, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. There's this, I listened to T Pastor Timothy Keller's marriage sermons many times, especially as a young man, because I thought, well, these sermons are so good. And then, and then later on, I, I found that I, 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 was a, I was a bad husband. <laughs> I listened to them. I was like, okay, I need to become a better husband. And then I studied them again as I became, you know, I started having marital issues among couples in my church. Here's a, here's a, here's a quote that's always stuck with me. He said this. He says, if you go out into the world... If your marriage is strong, if you go out into the world, you go out in the world in strength. Doesn't matter what else is going on. You're, you're sick. You're, your job isn't going well. It doesn't really matter. Your circumstances are poor. But if your marriage is strong, you go out into the world together in strength. But if your marriage is weak, it doesn't matter if you have the money, if you have the health, you have the looks, you have your promotions, everything. You go out into the world in weakness. That should stay with you. It's basically the same as Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 12. Let's, let's go to verse 20. I should read the whole thing, but just for the sake of time. She, that is the excellent wife. Listen to the description. What is she's like? She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Let's stop for a moment there. That's a little bit strange. She's not afraid of snow. This was written, this is ancient writing. Winter is serious business. And today we live in a society of such great abundance you could go get pretty nice clothes at Goodwill. If you are relatively poor, you can go to Walmart or even Goodwill and get pretty good clothes. But back then, that, not so. Generally, the wife had to make the clothes, had to make the linens. And that's why it matters that all her household are clothed in scarlet. That's actually colored because... You know, if you are poor and you don't actually take care of your family very well, you, you, there's actually no beauty in your house either. So the clothing has color. So that's what that means. There is clothing, it's fine linen and purple. So it's a life where there's more than just we're barely making it by. And by the way, that, that, success, that success sequence all those people who follow that success sequence, you know what the incidence of poverty is if you follow the success sequence? It's unbelievably low. So you could start off your marriage 
not doing very well in terms of finances. Certainly my wife and I were like that. I mean, you know, I'm a pastor, so I still don't have tons of money, okay? But we're a lot better off than we were at the beginning. And we're not poor. Um, so let's go to verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates, in other words, in the public. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. In other words, there is actually surplus by which you could bless your neighbors. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. So not afraid of the future because there's strength and dignity. We're clothed in strength and dignity. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The teaching of kindness is on his tongue. Husbands, have a teaching of kindness on your tongue for your wife. Not berating. Wives, please don't nag your husbands. And if you're going to give him criticism, please make it constructive criticism with kindness. And all those of you who are single, if you like somebody, check out what's coming out of their mouth. Not just how nice is their hair or does he wear brand name clothing or what kind of a a car he drives. What comes out of his mouth? And is there wisdom that agrees with the Bible? Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Not lazy and self-centered and just sitting around just looking at YouTube or social media or Netflix. I'm not saying those are bad things, but probably most of us spend a little too much idleness. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, fears Yahweh, is to be praised. That's exactly what we love, don't we? Charm, physical beauty, all the things that we look for. But then you marry her or him, and he has harsh tongue, no wisdom, lots of idleness, drinks too much, swears too much, doesn't want to have kids, ignores the kids. Verse 31, give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. I want to offer you a few more verses just to see, see, I didn't just cherry pick this passage, okay? So here's some other verses. So just a few, there's, there's more by the way. So I just, just, I, want to just cherry, I just picked a few. Just, I'm not cherry picking, but I'm like picking the ones. So there's all these verses strewn throughout Proverbs about the subject matter. What a good wife is like. What, a, what, what, what you're looking for. What you should be looking for. So here we go. First, Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19, 14. 
House and wealth are inherited from fathers. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Just, you know that throughout the Bible, God has great pity on those who are fatherless. And part of it is because this is how wealth and house and name are passed along. But today, I don't know if you know this, but know this, but kids who don't have fathers, they don't usually tend to do very well when it comes to wealth and obtaining a house. But it goes on to say a prudent wife is from the Lord. I think that's true in so many ways. It's true because will you pursue the Lord? Will you get his wisdom? Will you pray to the Lord? Will you ask him for a good husband, for an excellent wife? It's a gift. Because are you wise enough to know? Aren't you afraid that like, I don't know, this person has some flaws. Well, of course they do. They're probably thinking the same thing about you. So when I just go and meet the perfect person that just completely matches me and has everything that I want, then I'll get married. That's a capstone attitude. It's foolish. But if a person will truly love the Lord and will have this over their life, and will sacrifice to obey it, and will have repentance and walk in gospel grace, and know that Jesus is Lord, that is a person that is a gift. You can walk together in the Lord together for a life. Two more verses, and I, th I just thought this was, um, okay, this is a little more funny, okay? Proverbs 21, 9. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop, in other words, in your attic, then in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. How do you like that one? Okay, uh, that's just a funny verse. Oh, it is? Remember what I told you last week? God repeats himself if it's important. 10 verses later, <laughs> I'm not kidding. 2119, listen to this. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. How do you like that? Quarrelsome. In other words, you fight all the time. In the book of James, which is also about wisdom, you know why they say, you know why you fight? Because of your desires, and your desires aren't good. And of course, as soon as you get married, or if you even have a girlfriend, you know what you're going to find out? You're going to have conflicting desires, and you're going to fight. Can you figure out, can you and she, can you and he, can you figure out how to make peace, understand each other, meet each other, or you're going to constantly fight all the time. You're better off in a desert or in the attic of your house, according to God. Okay? Now, obviously, I can't say everything about going to go find a good husband and wife, but I want to just, this is one message. I want to put this on your radar. It's a really important piece of your life, especially for you young people. I don't care whether you're 14 or 24 or 34, 44, Put the foundation of your life in God's way. Now let me close my message. We are a gospel-centered church. I just gave you a lot of wisdom. Okay? Not mine. The Bible's. And a wise sociologist, a Christian sociologist who knows the Bible, I could tell just by reading his stuff. He's trying to track along with the Bible and offer research. But we need the gospel. Why? 
because we're bad at this. <laughs> we're bad at this. I remember when I was um when I was uh, in my early twenties. I, I realized I had a lot of selfishness when it came to the opposite sex. And I liked charm and physical beauty more than faith and character. That's just, I mean, this is simply true. And one of the things I remember asking of the Lord was, Lord, I need to not be in control of the way I date. I need you to lead me. I need you to lead me to a wife. It's a gift. Now, I don't know. It's not because I was so wise I figured that out when I was like 21 years old. You know what it was? It was, the evidence was, I, I was bad. <laughs> I just look at my life and go, gosh, you're, you're dumb. You're really stupid, Susan. And if you go into the future and you make these big decisions, which by the way, I'm not sure, okay, this will probably scare you. It is the biggest decision next to following Jesus. A lot more than where you go to school or what you major in or what job you get. Who you marry and how you approach marriage. We're bad at it. So I want to close with the good news of the gospel. And I want you to think about this. The story of the whole Bible is a story of marriage. God really cares about this. He really cares about your marriage. He really cares about the quality of marriage all around society. God knows that if a ton of a high percentage of the people in our society don't get married, then their children will grow up broken and there'll be more crime and addiction and suicide, all the things that make life miserable. He knows that and he knows it for you. So at the center of marriage, at the center of the gospel is actually marriage. And I want to give you the gospel encapsulated into the way it talks about marriage. And I'm going to close by reading the latter portion of the quintessential place on marriage, teaching in marriage in the Bible, is Ephesians chapter 5. This is verse 25. And I'm going to read this, and I want to say a little something about this, and then we'll close, okay? So here it goes. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ladies, you want a man who will love you not with charm, or handsomeness, or with money, but love you as Christ loved the church. In other words, if you don't know how Jesus loved the church, and you don't have to exalt how Jesus loved the church, how are you going to spot the man who knows how to do that? And if he doesn't know how, how that's been done, if he doesn't know what it means to be part of the church, and receive the way Christ has loved his bride, how are you going to get a husband like that? Hmm? Verse 26 so that he, that is Christ, might sanctify her, that is, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Let me say this. That's what you want your husband to do for you. You want him to sanctify you. Husbands, you want your wife to make you holy. It's a capstone. I'll never need to change. I've arrived. No, you are far from arriving you need your wife to tell you how selfish you are. You need your wife to make you want to shower, comb your hair, get a better job, stop swearing, stop drinking too much, go to church, follow Jesus, be a better husband. 
She's sanctifying you. This is what Jesus did for us. Verse 27. That he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor. In other words, make her more beautiful. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, you know, without all the things that are embarrassing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. So, brothers and sisters, how did Jesus marry us? Because we were so charming and so beautiful? Because we already had all our money and our act together? He came to wash us, to help wash away our shame and our blemishes. He came to build a life on sacrifice, his sacrifice. He came so that we can share in that kind of real life. And he did it first for us. He forgave us when we, quite frankly, deserved to be divorced and cast away. Heck, bothered to like never even date us in the first place. And he came to lay down his life and die for us. And then, even when we still cheat on him and are adulterous to him, he forgives us and loves us and stays with us to make us holy. This is the gospel. But this is what should happen inside of a beautiful marriage. Again and again and again. And this is what happens in a beautiful life. So brothers and sisters, you're looking for this. You're looking for someone who wants this kind of life. You're looking for someone who wants to live inside of the grace and of the holiness of which they are being changed by the great Savior, the great husband. And then they want to do this with you. And husbands and wives out there, this is a reminder. This is the center of your marriage. Not how much money you have. Not, you know, what great school your kids are going to go to. Not what cool vacation you're going to go to. Nobody's going to vacation anyway. anyway. Christ and the gospel is the center of your marriage. Live in him and have a great life. Let's pray. Lord, um, in a time where we are very fearful of marriage, in a time where there are a lot of failing marriages, Thank you that you, you didn't just teach us, you showed us. And you gave us the foundation for a life with you. And you gave us a foundation that we can have a life with our spouse or future spouse and our children. And even the singles can know they, through the church, have been covenanted together, held fast by Jesus they could be beloved by him and offer this life of self-sacrifice to others 
in this beautiful way that you have done for us. Thank you for washing us with your blood, for forgiving us, for making us holy and more beautiful than we ever thought we could be or even maybe wanted to be. In Jesus' name, amen.